0: Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and it's good to be back with you again podcasting. Alright, so this is part of the series of me going back over and trying to figure out what the seven-headed, ten-horned beast is in the book of Revelation and how that makes sense of of the book of Daniel. Really, it's kind of a comprehensive look at... um, What the symbolism really means, because as I've explained in the previous parts, there's kind of problems with most of the views out there, um, including my view, my previous view. And so what I am doing is kind of going back over all the relevant sections and sort of just checking my facts and learning more. In this podcast, I'm going to be going over Daniel 2, which is in many ways where I think it kind of all begins. It's kind of a base level thing that you got to figure out what to do with Daniel 2. I did that and I found a lot of things I hadn't seen before and kind of have a different take on it, but I will say I haven't really gotten any further in the overarching idea What the point, I guess, is that I'm expecting to happen is that as I get the little pieces that I missed on the first pass, when maybe um, I and many other people who do this, you know, sort of minimize the things that they don't like and maximize the things that they do. If I go back over all of it with no agenda uh, in mind, then perhaps I can, as I go through the process of, of studying each chapter again, Something will kind of click at some point. So that's the goal here. And I'm going over Daniel 2. And Daniel 2 is a chapter in which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream. Uh, his professional development program was that the, uh, the wise men in Babylon had to not had to tell him the dream and then interpret it. And nobody could do it except Daniel says, Hey, don't kill everybody. I think I can do this. They have a prayer meeting and he interprets the dream. The dream is of a multi metalled statue, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron mixed with clay. And uh, the interpretation is that it is different kingdoms, the first, the head of gold being Babylon, although the other kingdoms are not yet named because they're effectively prophecies at the time that Daniel wrote this. They are, we know, um, the silver would be Medo-Persia, the bronze uh, would be Greece, the silver legs would be Rome, and the feet and toes of iron and clay um, are... Probably we're going to discuss this a little bit, a a latter stage of the Roman Empire, although uh, there are different views as to what that exactly means, which we're going to be talking about. So that's the basics. Now, traditionally, many people have seen Daniel 2 as the same basic thing as Daniel 7. In other words, Daniel 7, in which Daniel this time has a dream. This has nothing to do with Nebuchadnezzar this time. Daniel has a dream of four beasts coming out of the sea, Uh, One like a lion uh, with wings, it's made to stand on its feet and its wings are plucked off. One like a bear that's raised up on one side, has three ribs in its mouth. And one like a leopard with four heads, swiftly across the land, etc. And then a, a diverse beast with iron teeth. And ten horns on its head and all the rest of it is basically a retelling of Daniel 2. That is to say, the first beast is Babylon, second is Medo-Persia, third is Greece, and the fourth is Rome with a revived Roman Empire aspect. In that case, the, the ten horns on the head. So basically, it's just the exact same thing, but a different way to say it. I have taken the position in the past in my commentary on Daniel and in other places that that is not a great way to look at it. And I go through some of the reasons, and we're going to be talking about that probably more as we get into Daniel 7. Um, but for the sake of argument, I have basically said, okay, that could be true. Um, and I think there are some good reasons to think it might be true. And I, I in one sense, I'm leaning that way. In fact, before today, I thought... I was going to be a lot stronger towards that view than I was, but after reviewing a few more things in Daniel 2, I just, I'm still kind of just waffling and primarily think that Daniel 2 is its own kind of encapsulated thing. I'm not going to say they're not related uh, or that you're not supposed to infer or to understand them as, as connected in some ways, but in the same way as kind of like Daniel 8 with the ram and the goat, It's primarily uh, fulfilled in the past, that is to say, the feet and toes uh, of Rome is not a revived end times thing, but rather it's describing the latter portion of the end of the Roman Empire. In other words, Daniel 2 is effectively and primarily a prophecy about the beginning of the kingdom of God, that is to say, when Jesus sets it up in the first century Uh, That's why the rock is described, which is clearly described as a kingdom, the rock that that destroys the statue, is said to be set up at that point. That's why the rock says it starts small and grows big, which is the same as the parables of the kingdom of God, in which multiple times are described as starting small and growing big, like the leaven, that little leaven, the whole lump, or like the mustard seed, in which starts small but grows big, which is another parable of the kingdom of God, to describe that small but growing big nature of it. The strength of that view is just this unbelievably accurate way it was fulfilled in the end of the Roman Empire. It's this, it's so good, it's so perfect that I have a really hard time deviating from that view. I know a lot of people don't like it. Um, because they feel and, and people like, you know, in the debate with Joel Richardson and other people have said, oh, this is a very preterist view of Chris. You know, that's a way to sort of uh, downplay you know, that. And of course, preterism believes everything was fulfilled in the past. They'll never say there's no future fulfillment of anything. You know, they'll say, did a man ever sit in the temple, to declare himself to be God? And they'll say, you know, and us futurists will say, no, that hasn't happened. That's obviously a prophecy of the future. We're preterists because it's part of their thing, will have to try to make it fulfilled in the past. So they'll say, uh, uh, well, yeah, kind of in a sense that the Romans had a flag that maybe probably could have gotten into the uh, Holy of Holies in 70 AD. And so, yeah, it was fulfilled in the past. So by me saying, well, Daniel 2 doesn't have much to do with the future anyway, um, they'll say, oh, this is preterist uh, and all that stuff. But it should be noted that it makes no difference to a futurist perspective. That is my view on Daniel 2. Daniel, I believe Daniel 7, Daniel 11, and 12 are future. So you get the full futurist perspective, even if Daniel 2 is just about a prophecy of the Messiah. It's kind of like the same thing in Daniel 8. If Daniel 8, as I think at this point, although I haven't studied it yet, is, which is the, the prophecy about the ram and the goat, which is specifically said to be about uh, Greece and Medo-Persia, and then out of that comes Antiochus Epiphanes and maybe the Antichrist... Uh, And at least in that one, it's got more option for it to be the Antichrist. But it is also very clear that it's almost primarily, if not exclusively, a prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes. You can take Daniel 2 and Daniel 8 out of the equation, and, and I'm still as futurist as can be with Daniel 7 and Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, where it's virtually obvious that we're talking about a future end times fulfillment with the Antichrist. I think that Daniel as a whole, needs to be understood in that way. I think there's a lot happening in Daniel where there are these prophecies that needed to be prophesied about the Roman Empire, which was in the complete distant future at the time that he wrote it, uh, as well as Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greek Empire, which is in the distant future. They were all important things that needed to be discussed. And though there are degrees in which they apply to the Antichrist, and I think some of them. If you demand that they are in times, because that's what is relevant to us now, then it's causing problems. So I think that's what's happening in Daniel 2. In any case, so what I'm going to do in this podcast is I'm first going to go over some of the reasons that I feel strongly that the interpretation that Daniel 2 is mostly about the end of the Roman Empire and the, and the empires that lead up to it, of course, but mostly about the end of the Roman Empire and not a prophecy of a future revived version of it. Uh, why I think that that interpretation is really hard to overturn. And then I also, in the second half of the podcast, I want to talk about some of the the reasons why, some of the problems that that view has, especially with regard to Daniel 2. Again, in this podcast, I'm not really going to talk much about Daniel 7, because I do think that when I get to Daniel 7, I'll probably challenge this view that I'm talking about today more than I would just looking at this view, because really the only... This chapter doesn't really give you a lot of uh, end times language. Uh, This chapter doesn't give you a lot to suggest that there's a reviving needed or anything like that. Most of that kind of stuff comes from reading Daniel 7 back into Daniel 2. Daniel 2 by itself doesn't do that for you so much as it is just pretty straightforward uh, what it is. So it's only when you know about Daniel 7 do you really start to question Daniel 2. So we're going to get more of that when we get to Daniel 7, but in this podcast, I'm going to talk about Daniel 2, the strength of the sort of uh, limited interpretation, and then its um, uh, arguments against that and come to hopefully some sort of conclusion. Okay, so there's virtually no disagreements about the first three parts of the statue and what they represent. Uh, It's only when we get to the legs of iron and feet of iron and clay that we start to get some disagreements. So there's one question right off the bat, which is, um, is the legs of iron different from the feet and toes of iron and clay? Are they the same kingdom, but the feet and toes of iron and clay are sort of the end or the chronologically later part of the legs? Or are they separate kingdoms somehow that should be understood as one conquered the one before it? And I think the answer to that is yes, they are uh, both and that actually the grammar sort of suggests that it's both and uh, it's really hard to pin down one or the other. I've tried a lot of different ways. Uh, And also I think the fulfillment of it is also both, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later on, but for now, let's just look at the feet and toes aspect of this what do we know about it the feet and i and part of my argument here is that the end of the roman empire is the makes the best sense of the available information we know about these feet and toes the feet and toes are a divided kingdom it's part this is what we know it's partly weak and partly strong represented by the weak clay and the strong iron it tries that is it, this divided kingdom, it's one kingdom, but divided somehow, it tries to, to fix itself. It tries to cleave itself together. I'm going to argue through marriage is what mingling this, your seed with other people is in the Bible. We'll look at that in a minute, but we'll also look at the other interpretations that people have about that, the Nephilim and so on and so forth. But it, But in any case, it tries to fix itself with that mingling, that, that uh, the surety, Uh, But it doesn't work. That's another data point. This mingling does not work, and instead it is defeated. Instead of mingling and fixing its divided nature, it is instead defeated. But that defeat is not like the other uh, medals in the statue in which they were defeated by the one that preceded it. This one is different because it wasn't defeated with human hands. Uh, i.e. another earthly kingdom, but instead it was defeated by the kingdom of God. And it's really important to understand, it's very obvious to anybody that wants to look, the kingdom of God, the rock in this, which is represented by the rock, is not uh, specifically Jesus or anything like that, it is a kingdom, it's yet another kingdom, it's God's kingdom, it is the kingdom of God that defeats this by striking in the days of those kings, the feet and the toes, and then it grows into a great mountain. Okay, so let's look at it piece by piece, to again, to show that I think this is a really good uh, prophecy. And I also want to say that at this point, I'm going to start getting into a lot of things that happened in history. In 285, Diocletian, blah, blah, blah. And then this happened and that happened. And Nepo did this and the other king did this. And generally speaking, I don't like Bible interpretations that have to get into the weeds in terms of uh, history of any kind. And part of the reason is just my preference to always interpret the Bible with the Bible. And usually that's um, something you can do, but it's not always something that you can do, especially in a situation like this, where it's sort of demanding, it's calling upon some very specific uh, historical happenings. Daniel is like that, especially when you get to like Daniel 10 and 11, you're talking about some very minute events that are happening is, you know, that you have to know history in order to sort of confirm your facts. So it does get into that. I don't like it when it does, but I do feel a little bit on solid ground that we're talking about the Roman empire because the Roman empire is so documented about just about everything about it. It's just been a part of the world knowledge for so long we have so many records about it that it's not one of those things that my interpretation is different than this guy's interpretation or that we don't have specific information about it. So the question first off is the end of the Roman Empire could it be considered divided? And the answer is of course. Rome as you know kind of had several stages it started off as a uh, republic Um, Then around Julius Caesar, well, right at Julius Caesar and Augustus following, it became the empire, right? Where it was just this very strong empire that existed for a long, long time. Uh, And then at some point, that singular empire just ruled by an iron fist by the single emperor, all of a sudden it got divided. And this division is incredibly well-known, the East and West Empires. started in 285 with Diocletian. He split the empire into four parts, which were called the Tetrarchy. But that didn't last very long at all. It was briefly united again under Constantine, but it quickly split again after his death into three divisions. It was total chaos. Everyone claiming to be emperor for a few years. Eventually, when all the dust settled, there were only two divisions of Rome: the eastern half and the western half. And that's how it would stay until Rome fizzled out of existence. Rome would never again rise to the prominence that what ha- it what it's once had at this point. And I'm reading from my commentary on this section, and it will grow. Uh, It will grow less and less powerful until it's a shadow of its former self, constantly sacked by invading barbarians, penniless and powerless. The exact date of Rome's fall varies because of the death-by-a-thousand-cuts nature of its decline, but most historians put its fall at about 480 AD, a mere 100 years after the division of the East and West Empires solidified." So this concept of divided and I try to to really narrow down this biblical term divided, does that definitely mean you know, divided into two? Is it a technical division or can it mean divided into multiple parts, as sometimes we use the word divided. It doesn't always mean two, it can mean many. And it didn't seem obvious from the text. It seemed like it could be used both ways. Probably your best bet would say to divide into two, but there were some suggestions that it could be multiple divisions. Uh, In any case, uh, they both work in this case. So we definitely know that the end of the Roman Empire was divided. Another data point, uh, is the end of the Roman Empire partly strong and partly fragile? And this is important because the text actually makes this two distinct points. As you saw, the feet and the toes; uh, it shall be divided. As you saw, the feet and the toes; one shall be strong and one shall be fragile. So it's not it's it's two big data points in Daniel about the description of the end of this uh, kingdom, or the feet and toes, however you want to look at it, the divided kingdom, and it it wasn't just that they were divided and they were both strong. No, one has to be strong and one has to be pretty fragile and that is unquestionably historically understood to be the case. The eastern half of this uh, coalition was incredibly strong. The western half you know, centered in what used to be the strong part. Rome, of course, used to be where it all centered, but Rome had since become basically a wasteland, constantly sacked by people, very difficult to rule because of that. Uh, they even moved the capital to Ravenna in 402 because it was so dangerous. The, the west didn't have any money. They couldn't hire soldiers. They were just, it, it was so bad. Um, the East, in contrast, in Constantinople was incredibly strong, really rich, very fortified. Uh, they could pay off people. They could they could hire troops and stuff like that. Eventually, the end of the Roman Empire, really, as we're going to see, is is the eastern half sort of taking control and like literally setting up kings of the Western Empire. That's what's part of this, trying to cleave them together, but it not working, as we're going to see. But but everybody would agree this is an incredibly good fulfillment. If it's talking about the end of the Roman Empire, the idea that one half of this empire would be strong and one would be fragile is unquestionably true in history. Another data point that I feel is best interpreted as the end of the Roman Empire and not the uh, end of the Antichrist Empire, at least what we know of the Antichrist Empire, is that it tries to fix itself, it tries to fix its divided, weak nature by, as the uh, ESV puts it, so that they will mix one another in marriage, Now, but they will not hold together, that's what the ESV says, The net says, and as you saw, the iron mixed with wet clay, so people will be mixed with one another without adhering to one another, just as iron does not mix with uh, clay. It's more really the King James and the New King James, they have it that has this sort of Nephilim context that we're going to look at later. But as you saw, the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. But what I mainly want to take from this right now is that this divided kingdom tries to fix itself by this mingling. Um, and I think, and you can see this in other uh, people that should know, people like Mike Heiser and stuff, who is no, no, he obviously believes in the Nephilim, but he doesn't think this verse is talking about the Nephilim, and for good reasons. the the This term, if you look up the term, it's in Aramaic in this section, but Aramaic Words have direct Hebrew correspondence, which you can do a word study on. The, the the idea of this mingling is the word Arab or Arab. It's basically the same word in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And it means to pledge for surety, it means to be mingled with marriage. It's used that way all throughout the Bible. Um, Ezra Nine two is a good example. Um, they have taken their daughters for themselves. It's talking about the Hebrew people intermarrying with the Gentiles as they were not supposed to do. It says they have taken their, for their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yet the hands of the princes and rulers and the chief men trespasses. So the seeds mingling themselves with other people. Uh, is a, and it's used that way in other places. It's obviously marriage and, and, and mingling there uh, uh, in that sense, because the word mingling is also also used of pledging surety for something. So um, it it's actually used that way probably the majority of the times in which you pledge your surety of something. Anyway, it, it's another thing that we'll look at later. Other, but the bottom line is that there's a reason why the ESV and, and others translate this as they tried to make these marriages to fix this problem, but it didn't work. Um, and that is an unambiguous, again, fulfillment in Rome. And as I say in the commentary, it would be one thing if I, you know, had to go searching for some obscure political marriages to try to fix this issue. But these are just blatant, exact fulfillments of this. This divided week, kingdom trying desperately recognizing its problem because it's divided because it's weak it needed to fix itself and the the solution it comes up with is multiple political marriages which don't work out because people are killed all kinds of stuff happens uh anyway let me just read from my commentary on that point The first, speaking of political marriages, was in 467, only about nine years before the last Roman emperor. This is a time when the Vandals were uh, posing a major threat to Rome, and while Leo, who was reigning strongly in the East, there had not been an emperor in the West for years because a man named Rickmer, who had been ruling behind the scenes by manipulating puppet emperors for many years, had not appointed another puppet emperor and was hoping that no one would care, that people would just accept him as the default emperor. All that became a problem in the, when the Eastern Empire was threatened by the Vandals again and imminent war was was ready. So Leo in the East decided to just choose an emperor for the West. He chose a guy named Anthemius uh, and sent him to the West with a big army so that Rickmer would just have to get with a new program. The marriage connection is that the emperor of the East, Leo, gave his daughter Leonida to Anthemius, the son of Marcian, to legitimize the reign of this new appointee to the West, essentially saying, okay, East and West, we're now one big family now. Uh, We are one family, the East and West. We have united, so let's go fight the Vandals or we're all going to be in big trouble. In addition, Anthemius also gave his only daughter Alpia to Ricimer, the the puppet master, so it would kind of be intermarried there, so they could even be a recognized family within the sort of shadow uh, deep state, which also made Anthemius, who was a Greek-speaking foreigner to the West, acceptable to the Latin-speaking Romans, of which Ricimer had become kind of a ringleader. This plan might have worked too, but the battle of the Vandals went very badly. Anthemius actually fell out with his Leonidas, Leo's uh, uh, wife for him, and he was actually killed by Ricimer. so it just didn't cleave together, to say the least. Second attempt of cleaving the East and West together with marriages, this time it occurred in 474, just two years before the last Roman emperor. Uh, with Julius Nepos. There's actually a lot of people that argue that Nepos was the last Roman emperor choosing not to count the child Romulus Augustulus, who ruled, quote unquote, for about a year after Nepos was exiled. This time, Leo married off his niece to Nepos. Actually, the surname Nepos means nephew because he took the surname nephew as his title, referring to his now- Uh, nephew status to Leo in the East. It should show us the importance of that marriage in the attempt to unify the East and the West, but it was too late for Rome. There were too many problems. And just like this verse in Daniel says, these two divisions of the final kingdom do not adhere to one another. And the fall of the Western Roman Empire is put somewhere around this time, 476 to 480. Also, I just thought of this. I have made all of my books for free now. I've put them in web format, and they're all free. I put a new website up. It's called Bible Prophecy Text. You can go through every chapter of every book I've ever written. It's all free. It's all searchable online, BibleProphecyText.com. And for the most part, I'm just going to consider them to be public domain. You can use uh, any of them any way that you want. Another data point that I feel is, in this one it's maybe not... Correct to say it's best described by the end of the Roman Empire, because this also would just as easily apply to the end of the Antichrist's uh, uh, empire, which is that it is destroyed not with human hands. The Roman Empire was not destroyed by another empire like the others on this uh, multi-statue list. It just sort of fizzled out. And the interesting thing, though, is that in both cases... I'm describing my interpretation or what I think is my interpretation of Daniel 2 being mostly represented about the end of the Roman Empire in that interpretation and in a possible interpretation of Daniel 7, in which it's all future, in which that, that kingdom is also destroyed by human hands. But interestingly, they both could be said to have been destroyed by the kingdom of God. And I think that might be the connection here. But um, let me talk about that in a minute. First, I just want to make this point that if you asked 100 different historians the main reason that Rome fell, you would get 100 different answers because there is just this a lot of reasons why Rome fell at that point. But all of them would agree, in all 100 of those, Christianity would be mentioned by all of them, I'm quite certain. It's just on every list as a main factor of the reason that Rome fell. And part of the reason for that is that Rome's state religion was the worship of gods, like, you know, Saturn, the the pantheon of gods. I mean, they're huge temples. They were very patriotic in Rome. They believed that the the reason Rome was Rome was because the gods favored them. And if you did bad things to the gods, then it would be bad for Rome. It was an incredibly important idea. Anybody that knows anything about Rome knows that. And so when Christianity was legalized in 313 and eventually became the state religion in 380, Remember the empire fell about 100 years later, 480. Um, That that was a huge cohesion problem. Not to mention the problems it caused with the slave class and and all kinds of other issues that grew out of that. The persecution of Christians uh, for as much zeal as people like Nero and other emperors put on that it caused a disillusionment with other aspects of it. And of course, it's just it's a really it's a really multifaceted thing. But to say that rome was actually if we're taking this idea and i guess i need to back up and we need to talk about this idea of the kingdom of god first So reading in context, Daniel 2, 34 through 35, this is when uh, the dream is described. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth later on when the dream is interpreted Daniel 2:44 and in the days of those kings which the God of heaven will set up a kingdom set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever so let's talk a little about the kingdom the stone is a kingdom a kingdom that God will institute during the Roman Empire that will eventually grow to encompass the entire world. This is agreed upon by many scholars, even Stephen Miller, who holds to the revived Roman Empire view. He's the guy I quote a lot in this commentary. There are some that would say that this has to be speaking of Jesus because Ephesians 2.20, which says he is the cornerstone. But that would offend the explicit teaching in this verse that this rock is a kingdom in the same way that the others were a kingdom. This rock is representative of what is known all throughout the Bible as the kingdom of God. And I will show you a few verses to demonstrate two points. Number one, that Jesus Christ begins the kingdom of God in his day during the Roman Empire. And number two, that the kingdom of God is supposed to start small and then grow large, typified by starting with the apostles and spreading to all those who will ever be saved. Number one, that Jesus Christ begins the kingdom of God in his day. Mark 1.15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew 12.28, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke 17, 20 through 21. Now, at one point, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God was coming. So he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is in your midst. There does seem to be a present and future sense of the kingdom of God in the sense that the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God is not here or in this world, but rather in the future. But I believe it can be shown with certainty that Jesus considered the kingdom of God to have been established or set up with him on earth during his teaching ministry. The second point that I think is important because it helps to explain this idea of this rock that struck the statue uh, being a rock, but then growing into a great mountain and filling the earth, this sort of two-stage aspect of the rock, the kingdom in the Daniel passage, seems to correspond with the parables in, uh, for example, Matthew 13, 31 through 33 about the kingdom of God. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. These two parables are describing the small and then growing large aspect of the kingdom of God. So this is, in a sense, a prophecy for all the ancient peoples as to the general time that the Messiah would come. That is, the kingdom of God would be established sometime during the Roman Empire. This may be one reason that messianic expectations were so high in Jesus's day. And that's basically the thesis I had for uh, the kingdom of God um, being established in Jesus's day. The kingdom of God will also be established when he destroys the Antichrist kingdom in the end times and sets up a literal total fulfillment of all the messianic expectations in the end times. And I actually think that more and more, really today, this kind of came uh, into more focus, that I think that's the point. You know, it's the same kind of problem that the people in Jesus' day had uh, trying to understand, hey, is this the kingdom of God? I mean, because that's what they really wanted was the end times version. And Jesus told them, here it is. The kingdom of God is here. But in a sense, it's not here. And I think maybe that's the the tension between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and the setting up of the two kingdom of God's there. But that's just a working theory right now. I, I really need to get into Daniel 7 before we can get there. So this next section starts what I call other considerations. And th- this first one kind of went back and forth. I-, I thought it was an argument against, then an argument for, then back against, then back for. And it is the idea that the Antichrist kingdom in other places doesn't seem to be described as divided, doesn't isn't described as weak. It's certainly not described as trying to cleave together, uh, but failing, trying to fix that problem, but failing. It seems to be described in the other Places that we know about the Antichrist in his his end times world is very strong. Who, who can make war with the beast? He seems invincible, um, at least for up until a certain point. Um, obviously, when Jesus comes back, he's not invincible at all. But there's this sense that it's extremely strong, not divided and weak. It's a new doctrine of the Antichrist, sort of. So that was an argument that I used to make saying that this is a very proof, positive case that that Daniel 2 the end of this, the feet and toes can be a description of the Antichrist because that's just not doctrine of the Antichrist. Now, on one hand, I would say that's certainly possible. There are other places where we know about the end times just because of one verse. If I said, well, we don't know, have any doctrine about the Antichrist in that, well, I could say, well, here it is. Here's your doctrine of the Antichrist. His kingdom will be divided and weak. And we know that because of Daniel 2, if no, if no other place. Then I was thinking, well, it could be a reference to the three kings in Daniel uh seven that get subdued, right? We talked about that in a previous podcast where he, he does something to to three of the horns uh and replaces them but not really replaces them because there's still ten plus him so he just sort of subdues or humiliates it sometimes it's translated as these three kings and uh, sort of converts them all to his side. So maybe whatever is happening with that sort of conversion of those three kings, or subduing or humiliating them, maybe that's supposed to be the other place where we now have evidence that uh, his kingdom was divided and weak. There was some infighting of some kind going on with those kings, right? The three humiliated and then became ten. And so then I kind of swung back and said, well, okay, maybe that's What's happening, especially because, you know, you got Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and there's some connections there and other reasons, so maybe that's kind of a parallel there. The divided and weak should be equated with the three kings being subdued. But if those 10 kings in uh, Daniel 7, I won't say there's 10 kings in Daniel 2 necessarily because it's never enumerated. Yes, it talks about toes, but it doesn't say there are 10 of them. You have to basically read back into Daniel 2, the number 10 from Daniel 7, Uh, If you want there to be 10, I'm not saying that's an impossible thing or that you're not supposed to do that, but for the sake of argument, I'm just taking Daniel 7 and say, well, there are definitely 10 horns and 10 kings in Daniel 7. If those 10 kings in Daniel 7 are to be equated with the 10 kings in Revelation 17, which I think is pretty much obvious, there are 10 horns on the beast's head. Uh, there are ten kings, They're the exact same things that are happening in both situations, ten horns in the head, ten kings that are associated with the Antichrist. I think it's a pretty much home run to equate the two. Then you've got a problem because it says this of the ten horns in Revelation 17. And the ten horns you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts To carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So these ten kings are godly ordained to be united with one another, first of all, being of one mind, and united with the Antichrist, handing over their royal power to the beast. So even if, and it appears to be, if we equate these, the very beginning of this aspect was there was a three king issue in which, you know, in his rise to power, he used three to get all ten on his side or what have you. Certainly by the end, which Revelation 17 is unquestionably at the end of this, this is them right at the destruction of Mystery Babylon, this is right before Armageddon, this is the very end of this situation, and if that's what you want to make the divided and weak nature of the of the feet and toes the iron and clay it's a necessary component that that must be the very end of that situation not not up near the ankles or whatever it's got to be the very end of this whole situation has to be they're divided they're weak they're trying to cleave together but not and that's taking obviously the cleaving together but not working has no, nothing I can think of. I mean, you just basically have to infer that maybe something will happen in the end times that we don't know about. It's not described in any other place uh, in which these 10 kings try to cleave together, but it doesn't work. You know, that's all taken on faith. Now, I know a lot of people will say, well, there's the Nephilim and everything else. And we'll talk about the Nephilim. But the bottom line with that is that if it is the Nephilim, you know, some kind of hybrid breeding program at the end, some attempt to make the two warring halves of the Antichrist kingdom the uh, 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 cohesive by some genetic thing, then the, the end result is it doesn't work, uh, you know? I mean, it doesn't do anything according to that. So there's just no real even reason for being, doing that. And again, if it is, it's just not described in any other place. So we just have to assume that something's going to come. We've been given information that we won't know about until until the time. The final thing that I'll say kind of is a pro for that view is there is no Antichrist language in Daniel 2. And this is significant for Daniel because Daniel, and in my commentary on Daniel, I actually put on the cover the seven-headed ten-horned beast because Daniel almost seemed uniquely obsessed is maybe not the right word, but I mean, he talks about the Antichrist and and creates this sort of consistent language around the Antichrist. Uh, Daniel 7, 8, 9, 11... 12 all have specific antichrist language that becomes basically a consistent theme every time he he talks about him or 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 it it becomes him you know like in the case of daniel eleven thirty six we know it's him because he starts this sort of danielic refrain of this is the guy this is the guy the abomination of desolation the three and a half years the warring on the saints and more so it and daniel 2 has none of that you could be forgiven for thinking Daniel 2 has nothing to do with any of those things. Because, and it's, it's really weird in Daniel for it not to, if it is talking about the Antichrist. A lot of people try to make that sort of distinction. They say Daniel 2 is like Daniel 7, except for Daniel 7, it goes into more detail of the Antichrist. They'll say something like that. Daniel 2 is, is just about the nations, and Daniel 7 is kind of the same thing, but now he talks about the Antichrist. And I admit that is not an incredibly strong argument. It wouldn't hold up in court. You could say, well, just Nebuchadnezzar's vision didn't go into it, so there was no opportunity for Daniel to talk about the Antichrist. And I suppose, again, that's all possible. It just is strange that that almost the entire majority of Daniel's visions had to do with the Antichrist in some way or another. Even when they didn't necessarily... they weren't exactly about him, they became about him. It was like it forced it like Daniel 8 is a good example or Daniel 11. It's like it's not but then it kind of just has to be because of the just this 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 strong current in Daniel that just keeps pushing him to reveal more about the antichrist. And to have none of that in Daniel 2 is suggestive. Okay, so let's move into some things that are against this theory. And I think the first thing is in Daniel 2:42 which says And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to other people. So the first thing I would say here is this idea of in the days of those kings. Now, I've argued in the past that the grammar has to be strongly talking about the kings of the two halves of the empire, or, you know, just to break it down even further, two halves of the the iron and the clay halves, whether they're multiple kings or not, um, in the days of those kings, the iron kings and the clay kings, that God will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. But more specifically, I would argue that um, it would be in the days of those kings which kings the the eastern half and the western half almost uh, and i would argue that partly in in verse 42 it starts off and it, it just singles out the toes before it's interesting like in verse 41 it starts off and was, as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron it's a d- divided kingdom so he's saying he's equating the feet and toes right in verse 41. But then in 42, he just singles in on the toes. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, now, he's already equated both the feet and the toes as one thing. They're both partly of iron and partly of clay. So is that significant that in 42, he just starts off with the toes of the feet? And if so, can we say that in addition to the in the days of those kings, meaning the clay kings and the iron kings, are we talking specifically about the toe kings? Is there a distinction to be made there? In one sense, I think it's a distinction without a difference. I don't think you can get away from the idea that it's talking about the iron kings and the clay kings, whether it's trying to also point you to the fact that there are 10 of them. Again, that's one of those things you got to read Daniel 7 back into this, but it is suggestive that it just goes with the toes in verse 42. And if if that is significant, then there, you at least have good solid ground for reading Daniel seven back into Daniel two and saying, well, there's 10 toes and there's 10 of these, even though nobody did that with the, the arms and said, Hey, well, arms have 10 fingers or whatever. Um, but my point here is that it says in the days of those Kings, and I'm going to read just what I have on this, um, in the days of those Kings who are essentially the divided parts of Rome according to my earlier view that I talked about, the Eastern and Western empires, this would cause a problem because Jesus established the kingdom of God well before 285 or so when it was officially kind of started to divide the different parts of the kingdom. So if I'm saying that in the days of those kings, and this is now necessarily talking about the kings that are partly strong, partly fragile, try to cleave together, but don't, which is that latter part of the Eastern and Western empires, then the kingdom of God wasn't established then. Jesus established the kingdom of God, you know, during his, you know, before 33 AD or whatever. So so what am I doing saying that the kingdom of God was established at 285? It's a problem. And up until today, I considered it a, an extremely significant problem. A big enough problem to say that, well, we just got to scrap... This idea because it requires this establishment of the kingdom of God after 285 AD. Um, but I think that it's not too far of a reach to resolve it this way. This is what I've, I've written. This could be resolved if this was more about the conquest of the other kingdom than the seed of the establishment of the kingdom. In other words, yes, the mustard seed was planted in Jesus's day But since this section is all about the rise and fall of kingdoms, it's an important distinction to actually destroy the Roman Empire first before you can officially call the other kingdom established. And so if you take the idea that it really was the seed that Jesus started in his day, that, you know, it's still growing, it's going to grow into a mountain and it's growing more every single day, but the growth that it had made by 285 literally crushed it, you know, destroyed that kingdom uh, of, of Rome. Well, are you saying, Chris, that there were no other kingdoms set up after Rome? Are we done with this kind of kingdoms after Rome and now the kingdom of God reigns? And, you know, on one hand, no, of course not. we got the British Empire and the Islamic Empire. We can name all kinds of empires that have existed uh, after, after uh, the kingdom of God was established and Rome fell. But it is undeniable that in one sense, the kingdom of God has been established and is growing. It's not as though it doesn't exist. It exists. It's just growing. And it's in a growing state. I don't know. There's a lot of spiritual aspect of that and things that I don't think are quite easy to understand, uh, but it is certainly one possibility uh, to resolve that issue. The other thing that I think is a problem is the consistency factor. So one argument in favor of the traditional view that Daniel 2 and 7 are the same, but different retellings, but with the Antichrist uh, more talked about in Daniel 7, is that the language about the establishment of the kingdom of God comes after the fourth kingdom is presented in both passages. So in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, an interlude or, or is is described in which a part of these visions is nations or kingdoms or what have you, uh, or kings in the world, um, and that's contrasted by the setting up of the kingdom of God. So you're, you we certainly know that they are parallel in one sense. They're talking about kingdoms then supplanted by the kingdom of God, which reigns forever. So I mean right there is a big problem for saying, well, they're not exactly the same. Daniel 2 has you know, Kingdom one, kingdom two, kingdom three, kingdom four, kingdom of God. Daniel 7 has kingdom one, Kingdom two, kingdom three, Kingdom four, kingdom of God. So you pretty much have to agree that there's some kind of parallel there. Um, I think it should be tempered with the idea that it doesn't always work like that. Daniel 8, essentially says kingdom one kingdom two kingdom three kingdom of god it just completely skips kingdom four altogether um unless you know daniel 8 is mainly about antiochus and uh you know not necessarily about the antichrist also i think that it's difficult because daniel 8 doesn't have as explicit kingdom of god language except for that little horn there is destroyed without human hands, the exact same language spoken of the kingdom of God rock that destroys the Antichrist and the others. So, or at least in Daniel 7, and, and to uh, some extent, if you want to infer the Antichrist in Daniel 2, then, yeah, then you have the kingdom of God there, except it just skips four altogether. So it's really, really difficult. Uh, to to understand. And I don't think that it's any help, but it is, I believe, something that has to be factored in at the end of this. Whatever I say, conclude, if I conclude anything about Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, I will have to make sense of the fact that they both have the kingdom of God established at the end of the fourth or last uh, uh, item. And I will say that when we get to Daniel 7, I have more sympathy for the sort of traditional view that they're similar because, well, at least that Daniel 7 is more chronological than it is contemporaneous because I'm starting to see more possibilities for what the bear might be or these kinds of things that are more traditional in nature. I didn't see any scriptural evidence to back it up, but I think uh, I'm starting to maybe, because of Daniel 8, Maybe understand a little bit more about how it's using those symbols, but that's just a guess. I haven't really even looked at Daniel 8 or Daniel 7 in depth with this new uh, concept in mind, so it could be like today where I just change my mind completely once I actually do dig into everything. Nevertheless, let's move on to the next thing, which is just briefly hitting some of the other views about this. And I wanted to briefly talk about the Nephilim view and the Islamic Antichrist view of Daniel 2. In my book, and again, I've just made my books all free online, BibleProphecyText.com. You can go there, you can look at the uh, Islamic Antichrist debunked section. I think this is actually chapter one in which I talk about Joel Richard's. Joel Richardson's theory of, of Daniel 2. But basically, he zeroes in on Daniel 2.40, which has this phrase, crush all the others in some translations. It says, and f- the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, insomuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. First of all, uh, he believes that the crushing all the others is a reference to a kingdom being able to claim that it is holding all the lands that the previous empires held in history. Like 100% of the lands are now held by this final empire. Therefore, in that sense, it has crushed them. So that's it's a geographical sort of uh, argument, I guess you could say. He makes the case that Rome can't be the fourth kingdom because... Even at its largest point, it didn't hold all the lands, 100% of the lands that that the, for example, the Babylonian or Medo-Persian Empire had held. So we have to go find another empire, and he says that empire is the Islamic Empire. All right. So as far as the Islamic Empire view, I'm mostly going to direct you to the new website I mentioned, BibleProphecyText.com, in which all of my books are now for free. You can just click on the Islamic Antichrist version. Chapter one is all about this section in Daniel two. His uh, Theory about Daniel 2 is refuted point by point, all the grammar, all the other arguments, and things like that. But I wanted to talk about another one that I just thought of today that I didn't think of, obviously, when I was writing the book. And that is that since his argument is that we have to skip Rome after Greece, it can't be Rome after Greece, despite all the logical reasons you would want Rome to be after Greece. It can't be because Rome, in his view, this is all about how much land they had acquired and they have to acquire 100% of all the land. Uh, so since Rome didn't, for example, ever control Persia or basically modern day Iran, it was just too far East for Rome to get to. So they never controlled that. So it can't be Rome. We have to go to his, his one, the Islamic empire, which did, for example, control Persia. But the problem is, is that even by that own logic, He has to have the Islamic empire, not the future revived Islamic empire. And he would admit this. He has to have the the, the historical Islamic empire, 1300 years long. He has to have that control, all those lands. But even in his own logic, it didn't even come close to that. For example, uh, Alexander's empire obviously controlled Greece, where he came from. And the vast majority of Asia Minor, you know, Thrace and Lydia and all that stuff, which was all controlled by the Byzantine Empire, never controlled by the Islamic Empire. The Islamic Empire, nobody would argue controlled Greece or, or as I said, the entire western portion of of Asia, Asia minor, a very important part. I mean, basically the entire northern part of the Mediterranean, arguably the very thing that you need to control, according to Daniel 7, when they came out of the Great Sea, the Islamic Empire never did. So literally his main argument, if not his only argument, for why it has to be the Islamic empire and not Rome, isn't even true in his own logic. His Islamic empire did not control all these lands, and probably the most significant portion of the land that's needed to control, it didn't even control. So anyway, as I say, check the rest of the book. I've also put out the audio podcast of that book, which is on this feed if you want to learn more about that. Uh, But that's just something else I thought about today. As far as the Nephilim interpretation it really kind of comes down to the sort of spookiness of the King James. They will mingle their seed with the seed of men, but they will not cleave together, even as iron doesn't mix with clay. And so the idea, and you know, I used to listen to Chuck Missler, and he would say, well, if they're going to mingle with the seed of men, they have to be something other than the seed of men. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, I think it is, I, I will say that obviously mingling one's seed if we just take that part alone, mingling one seed, we can be absolutely sure that the the ESV isn't, or the N A E T or the others aren't out of out of nowhere saying that this is about marriage because that's what that means in other places. Mingling one seed means to intermarry basically with the assumption of having kids, basically. But that's the way it's used in uh, the biblical marriage is, you know, if you're mingling, you're mingling in marriage. (laughs) So that's the way it's used in in the Bible, Ezra 9 too, as we mentioned. They've taken daughters for themselves and for the sons, so the the holy seed may have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. It's talking about Jews intermarrying with uh, Gentiles, as it does in the Psalms as well. The same concept is used, them intermingling with Gentiles. So I really think that I'm not going to be as dismissive as this as before, because I do think mingling their seed with the seed of men, that phrase seed of men is different. I think that you could best look at that as number one, the concept of these kings intermingling with the seed of men may be a reference to sort of a different concept that's happening in that there's no Jews involved. So, for example, the political marriages, and I actually saw this today, it was in my book, but I'd never really paid attention to it, is that Anthemius was this foreigner. He was a Greek-speaking guy, you know, foreigner, that was not a Latin-speaking type, you know, acceptable guy to the Romans, but it was more important uh, to get them all on the same page than it was to sort of make sure that the bloodline was correct or whatever, um, it may also be there were some things happening with the barbarians and things like that, that political marriages within the Visigoths and things like that were happening too. So the seed of men may be just sort of a way to discuss the, the, that particular uh, political marriage scene at the end of the Roman Empire that, you know, something like that. So that's my guess if i wanted to say okay because it says the seed of men that's a cue to mean this is you know something bigger or aliens or nephilim or whatever then i'd have to say when first i should say that other translations don't use the seed of men they they translate it like the nat and in that case you saw iron mixed with clay so people will be mixed with one another is the way it has it there and i really think this is something you need to get with a scholar about for the most part to really dig into what this actually means. And people like, as I say, Mike Heiser, who is no stranger to the Nephilim idea, uh, doesn't think this has to do with Nephilim. It's not like he's scared of Nephilim or anything like that. I mean, it's arguably his main thing, right? And he, as a Hebrew scholar, and somebody should that should know better, says, no, this is talking about uh, intermarriage as the, the uh, various Bible translations have it. But for the sake of argument, let's assume that this is talking about mingling with the seed of men, part of this kingdom was not human. And let's say the, the iron or maybe it was the clay, I don't know. Well, one part of the that section wasn't human and they wanted to mingle with the seed of men for the purpose of unifying and saving this kingdom. Uh, but it doesn't work. So if we just assumed that was aliens and maybe some hybrid program or, you know, just choose your choose your thing, choose your chimera or aliens or what have you, it ultimately becomes as mundane as the fizzling out of the Roman Empire. The net result of it is nothing. The net result of it is it doesn't work and it ends. They try to fix it because they're weak, because they're divided, because they're impotent. They try to this cleaving together thing, but it basically is is a footnote in history because it doesn't work and the empire fizzles out. Well, I don't think I had mentioned the four or five kingdoms thing. So I did a little bit of research on that um, concept, which is, is the legs different from the feet and toes? In other words, I was trying to, you know, make sure I could say, um, are we dealing with a completely separate, not revived, you know, with the feet and toes of iron and clay? Maybe that's like a whole nother empire altogether, that we need to be looking for and not necessarily just the chronologically later part of the legs of iron and as i say the answer is yes it's kind of like both there are two places where i think it pretty much explicitly says it's a different kingdom in a sense um so let's see the head of this image was fine gold One, its chest with the arms of silver. Two, its middle of the thighs of bronze. Three, its legs of iron. Four, its feet partly of iron and of clay. Five. So in that case, it it, it gives the feet... It's entirely different, sort of in the in the way it's using that language. It's a, given it a completely different uh, uh, thing, and it does kind of the same thing in uh, Daniel two forty five b. In the interpretation, just as you saw the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it was broken pieces, and that it broke in pieces the iron one, the bronze two, the clay three, the silver four, the gold five, and great God is and a great God is made known to the king what shall be after this. So um, five there, but. In another place, like um, in 38 through 41, it enumerates the kingdoms. The third kingdom shall be like this. The fourth, and it seems it doesn't go into the fifth. It just, when it talks about the feet and toes, it just says it shall be a divided kingdom, which suggests that it is still talking about the fourth kingdom. And a lot of the grammar when talking about the divided iron and clay seems to kind of be hearkening back. It's not as clear, but it seems to just be hearkening back to the fourth kingdom in a grammar-wise and everything else. So that's why I kind of actually think that certainly it is different. The the divided end of the Roman Empire in the original view, uh, when, after 285, when it became the East and West Roman Empires, is different from this just unstoppable Roman Empire from, uh, let's say... Uh, Caesar, I guess, to Diocletian, that that just the heart of the Roman Empire when it was singular, it wasn't divided. Sure, they they had infighting and stuff like that, but it was the Roman Empire in Rome. It, and again, it wasn't really until 285 where it became this sort of weak uh, shadow of itself. And it seems that Daniel two is making a distinction, saying there's one kingdom and then there's this other divided kingdom, and it seems to be okay with you thinking that they're the same and and different and there are other reasons too i think that give people the concept that that's how you should understand this in other places in the bible but again i'm just trying to work from daniel 2 okay i think that sums up everything i wanted to say on this and uh, i'll move on to daniel 7 at some point sorry i don't have any absolute uh Uh, answers for anybody yet, you can email me at chriswhite79 at protonmail.com and we'll see you next time.